Welcome to the Charleston Time Machine. I'm Nick Butler, historian at the Charleston County Public Library. Graveyards fascinate some people while inspiring morbid dread in others. Like them or not, cemeteries are an important part of our shared landscape that merit respect and protection. Some burial grounds are more visible and better remembered than others, however, and the most invisible are the most endangered. The city of Charleston is home to several such invisible sites, unmarked and unprotected graveyards that are filled with the remains of thousands of nameless bodies interred by local government. The surviving details of these forgotten public cemeteries forms an important and rather ghastly chapter in the city's famous landscape. In recent years, a number of individuals in our community have drawn attention to the forgotten cemeteries throughout the South Carolina Lowcountry that have become derelict or are threatened by the pressures of new development. The late Dr. Ade Afunian, for example, raised a strong voice for the protection of neglected burial grounds containing the African-American ancestors of the people who inhabit the Gullah Geechee Cultural Heritage Corridor. Dr. O's passion for the preservation of forgotten cemeteries continues with the work of the Gullah Society, and their efforts might soon receive a boost from the federal government. As Adam Parker described in a recent article for the Charleston Post and Courier, Congress is debating the establishment of the African American Burial Grounds Network. This project, if approved, would engage archaeologists, preservationists, historians, and volunteers to create a comprehensive study of black burial grounds in South Carolina and across the United States. In an effort to contribute to this worthy dialogue, I'd like to draw attention to a rather large elephant in the room. Among the largest, oldest, and most densely populated graveyards in Charleston County are the forgotten public cemeteries established within the urban boundaries of the city of Charleston. In this program, and its sequel next week, I'll attempt to describe the cultural and geographic context in which tens of thousands of forgotten Charlestonians were buried on the peninsula at sites that now host homes, schools, businesses, and playgrounds. This subterranean population includes a significant number of people of European descent, but persons of African descent occupied the vast majority of these unmarked graves. Furthermore, the surviving documentary evidence of public burials on the Charleston Peninsula suggests that the majority of the graves dug on public land at the public expense were used to inter the remains of infants and young children. Let's begin with a quick overview of the various types and locations of historic burials in our community. Charleston was the only urban center in South Carolina during the early decades of European settlement. Outside of the capital town, the early settlers distributed across the sparsely populated low country generally buried their family members on their own farms and plantations. As rural churches appeared across the various rural parishes, each of those institutions began receiving the bodies of their respective members for burial within consecrated grounds adjacent to the church. The enslaved people who formed the majority of the rural population in early South Carolina were generally buried on the rural plantations where they lived and died. 
After the demise of slavery in 1865, the African-American population followed these familiar patterns by burying family members on their own property, or on the plantations of their ancestors, or within the graveyards of new churches established in new settlement communities across the Low Country. Within South Carolina's colonial capital, the inhabitants generally followed a similar outline of traditional burial practices. Some early Charlestonians were buried within the soil of their own town lots, but most were buried within the consecrated churchyards that were laid out in the late 17th and early 18th centuries. Like other urban centers of that era, Charleston also hosted two groups of people not usually found in the countryside. A steady stream of visitors, such as traveling merchants, tourists, and sailors, as well as poor people who were, owing to a variety of circumstances, unable to support themselves or their families. When such people died here, they generally did not have a family member, church membership, or sufficient financial means to secure a gravesite within a designated churchyard or to pay for their interment at some distant location. To accommodate such inevitable events, the town's civic leaders set aside a portion of the finite urban landscape for the burial of indigent persons and visitors, or strangers, as they were called in early Charleston. The concept of a communal or publicly owned site reserved for the burial of transient and indigent people originated in distant millennia. Such a place is frequently called a potter's field because of the ancient practice of potters digging clay from a shared location within a community. As the first urban center in South Carolina, Charleston established a public cemetery nearly 350 years ago, during the town's formative period. Other potter's fields appeared across the low country as settlers created new unincorporated towns, such as Beaufort and Georgetown, and later incorporated municipalities such as Moultrieville and Mount Pleasant. In all such cases, the civic leaders of each of these communities had to make decisions about how and where to bury the bodies of deceased paupers and visitors. This historical burden began to shift to the county government in the spring of 1920, following the creation of the Charleston County Health Department and similar agencies across the Lowcountry. Public cemeteries were a familiar part of urban life for many generations of South Carolinians into the early 1900s. Thanks to improvements in health care and expanding economic prosperity over the past century, combined with the mass migration from urban to suburban neighborhoods after World War II, the burial grounds set aside for the less fortunate have receded from the public imagination. Far fewer indigent and transient people are buried in Charleston County today than a century ago and most residents are now unfamiliar with the phenomenon and its history. Nevertheless, the legacy of this long civic tradition persists under the streetscape of urban Charleston. Over the course of approximately 250 years, from the 1670s to the 1920s, Tens of thousands of men, women, and children were buried in unmarked graves located within a series of public cemeteries distributed across the landscape of urban Charleston. 
Starting in the spring of 1927, the practice of public interments moved away from the peninsular city to a suburb west of the Ashley River, and then in 1961 to a rural location on Johns Island. The two latter sites are protected by modern laws that shield them from development in perpetuity, but the earlier burial grounds have long since been redeveloped for residential, commercial, and even recreational use. Past construction projects have repeatedly disturbed the bones of an army of forgotten dead across the city, and future improvements to Charleston's urban landscape will inevitably strike human remains again. While this grim topic is generally unfamiliar to most of the public, there is a robust paper trail of documentary evidence relating to the public cemeteries of Charleston that we can trace back to the founding of the colonial town in the late 17th century. A number of writers over the generations have addressed various small aspects of this topic, and there is now one publication that offers a general geographic overview. In 2010, the Shakora Foundation of Columbia produced a volume titled The Silence of the Dead that provides a survey of all the known cemeteries, both public and private, on the Charleston Peninsula. The vast majority of historic burials described in that source belong to churches and private burial societies that maintained the land and protected them from encroachment. In contrast, the small number of potter's fields represents the largest cemeteries ever created within the city, containing the largest numbers of bodies, and have always been the least protected and the least remembered. To gain a better understanding of this important topic, we need to turn our attention back to the earliest days of the historic landscape. In the original town plan of present-day Charleston, the so-called Grand Model, drafted in 1672, before the town between the Ashley and Cooper Rivers even had a name, all of the land to the south of what became Buffane Street and its eastward continuation was divided into approximately 300 half-acre lots and a dozen streets. This plan also included a large, vaguely defined parcel of land at the northwest corner of the town that was set aside for general or common use, and which the town's early inhabitants apparently used as a public burial ground. Surviving copies of the grand model include a label describing this parcel as the Old Churchyard, although there was never a church at or near that site. The geographic scope of Charleston's first public burial ground, as depicted in the Grand Model, included approximately 14 acres of high land bounded on the north by the town line that became Buffane Street, on the south by an unnamed street that became Queen Street, and on the east by a street that became known as Mazique Street, later Logan Street. Its western boundary was apparently the bank of the Ashley River at high tide, which during the late 17th century was just slightly west of modern Franklin Street. The physical boundaries of this parcel were not clearly defined on the ground during the town's early years, and burials might have taken place anywhere in this general area. This possibility was mentioned in a report presented to Charleston City Council in the autumn of 1799, 
when a committee researching city property noted that, quote, the whole of the neck of land to the westward of Mazique Street appears to have been set apart and used as a burying ground, end quote, during the town's initial decades. Proof that burials were taking place at this site during the late 17th century appears in two documents created in late 1698. On October 8th of that year, the South Carolina General Assembly ratified a law requiring property owners on the northern edge of urban Charleston to create a fire break for the town by removing all the trees and shrubs on their property, quote, within a straight line drawn from the head of Major Daniels Creek to the head of the marsh going to the old burial place, end quote. The resulting line, or firebreak, followed the path of modern Market Street, from Meeting Street to Archdale Street. On the same day, the government granted to Captain James Moore a large tract of vacant land on the south, north, and west sides of the public property used as a burial ground. To distinguish the lands now belonging to Captain Moore from the graveyard, the provincial surveyor then laid out two new lines to define the cemetery's north and west sides, which later became known as Magazine Street and Back Street, now Franklin Street. This modification, accomplished during the winter of 1698-99, constrained Charleston's first public burial ground to a neat square containing four acres. As individual churches arose within urban Charleston during the late 17th and early 18th centuries, their private congregations began burying members within the consecrated grounds adjacent to their respective churches. Transient Christians, including sailors and visitors commonly called strangers, who died within the town, might have been buried within the graveyard of any one of the local churches or within the designated public burial ground. After 1706, however, when St. Philip's Anglican Church became the official parish church of urban Charleston, that institution assumed the responsibility of burying paupers and strangers either within its own burial ground adjacent to the church or within the old churchyard at the northwest edge of town. The growth of various churches within urban Charleston during the early years of the 18th century apparently led to a decline in the use of the town's original public cemetery. As a result of this circumstance, the South Carolina legislature began to appropriate some of the four-acre public site for other purposes. During the year 1736-37, for example, the provincial government built a brick powder magazine at the southeast corner of what became known as Magazine and Back, or Franklin Street, and a poorhouse at the southwest corner of Magazine Street and Mazique Street, now Logan Street. The new magazine was condemned in December of 1739 and demolished, however, and the provincial government built a new magazine in 1745-46, closer to the center of the public square. On the vacant site of the defective magazine, the government built a set of brick barracks in 1746-47, where the old Charleston District Jail now stands at the southeast corner of Magazine and Franklin Streets. The surviving records of these construction projects includes no mention of graves being disturbed or bodies removed, but they likely encroached on earlier burials.
The diminished frequency of burials within the old churchyard on the northwestern edge of Colonial Charlestown was accompanied by a general decline in the maintenance of that public land. In November of 1743, for example, a grand jury complained to the provincial government, quote, that the old churchyard or burying place in Charlestown is very much neglected and that all manner of filth and nastiness is thrown into the graves and vaults of the deceased, whereby the surviving relations of the deceased are very much troubled and grieved, end quote. One year later, another grand jury filed a similar complaint about the town's oldest cemeteries in general. Citizens were aggrieved by the, quote, indecent and the very little regard showed to Christian burying places, by the old churchyards being laid open and fenceless like a common for cattle, end quote. The government of South Carolina addressed these concerns tangentially in a law ratified in the summer of 1746. During a period of war with both France and Spain, the provincial legislature had just finished the construction of a new line of earthen fortifications fronted by a broad ditch or moat to protect the north and west sides of urban Charleston. These new entrenchments cut through and occupied part of the land immediately north and west of the public burying ground, which belonged to private parties. To protect the fortifications and to compensate the private owners for their loss of land, the provincial government exercised its power of eminent domain and expropriated a parcel of land immediately northwest of the old burying ground. More specifically, the government absorbed two acres, one rood, and one perch of land, that is, 2.26 acres, lying to the northwest of the ditch between the two westernmost bastions and the town line, which was, quote, allotted for a Negro burying ground forever, end quote. Furthermore, the government ordered that, quote, a convenient passage to the said Negro burying ground shall be laid out through the glebe land, end quote. That passageway later became the eastern part of Bufane Street. Like the town's original public burial ground, the land expropriated in June 1746 was defined in rather vague geographic terms that were obvious only to the local inhabitants of that era who could walk to the site and view the new fortifications. Thanks to the survival of plats like George Hunter's 1746 survey of the new fortifications and later descriptions, however, we can locate this Negro burying ground with some confidence. The property in question encompassed all of the land immediately south of modern Bufane Street, north of Magazine Street, all of Wilson Street, and the land on both the east and west sides of that modern thoroughfare. The Legislative Act of 1746 also sheds light on an important part of Charleston's mortuary history that is not fully addressed in earlier records. The creation of a new burying ground specifically designated for the reception of people of African descent suggests that the enslaved people and free people of color inhabiting early Charleston might have been excluded from the old churchyard established in the 1670s, or were perhaps buried infrequently within that public site. 
Such discrimination corresponds to the general disregard that the white slaveholders of early South Carolina paid to the spiritual lives of their human property. A minority of the colony's early enslaved people of African and Native American descent were Christianized, and perhaps local officials deemed them unworthy of burial within the town's official public cemetery. People of African descent formed the majority of South Carolina's population by the year 1708, and from that time until the early 20th century, they formed roughly 50% of Charleston's urban population. One of the only documentary clues related to their burials within the capital prior to 1746 survives in a complaint sent to the provincial legislature in the summer of 1724. In a message to the Commons House of Assembly on June 6th, Governor Francis Nicholson suggested, quote, that some place be appointed for the burial of Negroes, because I observe that now they are promiscuously buried in private lots and some in the streets, end quote. In other words, the private, slaveholding citizens of early Charleston routinely buried their deceased enslaved property on their own real estate or in the street near their property. Their graves might or might not have been marked in some fashion, but the presence of such burials did not deter property owners from selling or developing the land for other uses. The continuation of this practice into the later years of the 18th century was proven in February of 2013, when the expansion of the Gilliard Center on the east side of Anson Street revealed a significant but heretofore unmarked graveyard, which I described in episode number 111. The creation of the Negro Burying Ground in 1746 did not address the earlier complaints about the poor condition and lack of maintenance observed within the old churchyard bounded by Queen, Mazique, Magazine, and Back Streets. In fact, the expansion and segregation of Charleston's public cemetery seemed to underscore the disorderly manner in which the bodies of enslaved people and poor white folks were generally buried. South Carolina's provincial government created a board of commissioners in 1750 to clean and repair the streets of urban Charleston, but their duties did not extend to the care of the public burial grounds. At least one citizen lamented this limitation, especially when smallpox ran rampant throughout the town in the early months of 1760. As hundreds of diseased bodies were hastily buried in Charleston's segregated public cemeteries, he voiced his concern in a remarkable letter to the editor of the local newspaper that April. Quote, The truly melancholy situation we have been in for some time may plead excuse for a very great neglect, which is high time to prevent, or it must be productive of fatal consequences. In this time of death occasioned by smallpox, the vigilance of the commissioners for the streets in Charlestown is truly commendable, for they have exerted themselves with unwearied diligence to prevent what everyone had reason to dread from the accumulated mass of filth and corruption with which the streets, to the shame of the inhabitants, have too often abounded. As they have so happily freed us from this evil, it is the hearty wish of many that another matter, the thoughts of which make me shudder, 
had been under their cognizance, or that some other gentleman would have served the public as faithfully as they have done. It was but lately I was certain of what I shall now inform you of. Hearing that many of the Negroes who died of the smallpox were buried not a foot underground, and knowing that some days there were twelve, fourteen, sixteen, and eighteen buried, I went to their burial place and found more than forty not two feet underground, and many not one foot, and some not six inches. I do assure you that the very cows, by their pawing, had laid one coffin quite bare. What these beds of corruption may be productive of, in this and the approaching season, if not speedily removed, everyone may conceive without painting, in my humble opinion, some pestilence far worse than the smallpox. When this affair was first mentioned, some said certainly it ought to be looked into. Others said that if some steps was not immediately taken, the consequence might be fatal. But it is well known that what is the business of all is the business of none. Even from a principle of humanity, it is the business of a master to see his negro buried in a different manner from his dog. If humanity will not prompt him to do it, one would imagine self-preservation would. Without taking upon me to dictate, I think that a man should be compelled by law to do that which it is his duty to do without compulsion. I know it will be said that it was impossible for some masters, however willing, to see their Negroes buried. I grant it, but instead of a Spanish dollar to a Negro to dig a grave, if they had given a white man forty shillings, many would have been found on whom they could have depended and who would have been very thankful. In the ground belonging to the church, I am informed that at the depth of four or five feet the water rises. But this is not the case in the Negro ground. They may dig seven or eight feet free of water. The first two feet is light sand. After that, it is solid clay. If it was all sand, it is likely they would dig six feet. But when they come to the clay, it begins to be a little laborious, and for want of a proper person to overlook, they dig no deeper. End quote. The line of earthen fortifications built in 1745-46 was raised in the spring of 1766 and pushed into the adjacent moat. This work removed the physical barriers that stood for 20 years between the old churchyard and the Negro burying ground. But the intervening space, immediately north of Magazine Street and immediately west of Back or Franklin Streets, apparently remained vacant for the next 14 years. In the meantime, Charleston's urban population increased rapidly after the conclusion of the French and Indian War in 1763, and the growing number of dead strangers strained the hospitality of the town's two Anglican parishes, St. Philip's, established in 1706, and St. Michael, established in 1751. In response, the provincial government ratified a law in April 1768 directing that all deceased strangers and transient white persons should henceforth be interred within the public square on the northwestern edge of town, quote, which was anciently a burying ground or cemetery belonging to the parish of St. Philip, end quote, rather than within the Anglican churchyards of urban Charleston. 
By the commencement of the American Revolution in 1775, the old churchyard on the northwestern edge of urban Charleston had been in use for approximately 100 years. Three months after the British Army captured Charleston in 1780, the town's new Board of Police declared that, quote, the ground heretofore allotted for the interment of strangers and transient persons is filled, end quote, and closed to future burials. The occupying forces expropriated the land to the north and west of the earlier public burying grounds for the subsequent burial of strangers, but their description of the land in question relied on temporary landmarks now long gone. Regardless of the specifics, we can surmise that British officials made use of some indeterminate number of acres beyond the earlier public cemeteries. According to one post-war property advertisement published in 1783, the interment of dead transients and soldiers during the British occupation reached as far northward as the northwest corner of Wentworth and Pitt Streets. When the state legislature ratified the incorporation of Charleston in August 1783, the state ceded most of the public lands created within the town during the colonial era to the new city council. This property included all of the public land used up to that time for the burials of poor white people, transient strangers, and people of African descent. The nascent city government apparently continued to use this land and or the real estate expropriated by the British Army in 1780 for the same purposes for a further 11 years. If there was any further modification to or expansion of the public burial grounds, the records of such activity disappeared with the bulk of early city records during an episode I like to call the Great Memory Loss of early 1865. The next significant development in this topic arrived in August of 1794, when the city government opened a new public cemetery on the north side of Boundary Street, now Calhoun Street, and officially closed the lands that had received the bodies of deceased paupers, strangers, and enslaved people of urban Charleston for the preceding 120 years. Because this event marked the beginning of a new era in this conversation, I'm going to pause here for a brief review. The four-acre square bounded by Queen, Logan, Magazine, and Franklin Streets remained in government hands until the late 19th century and hosted a succession of public institutions, including poorhouses, workhouses, hospitals, and jails. The old burial grounds to the north of Magazine Street and to the west of Franklin Street, which contained some unknown number of unmarked graves, were sold at the turn of the 19th century to private parties who subdivided them and sold them in numerous chains of further subdivisions and private conveyances. By the turn of the 20th century, this former potter's field had evolved into a vibrant, densely populated neighborhood dominated by poor people of African descent. The white civic authorities deemed it a slum, however, and obtained federal funds during the Great Depression to demolish the neighborhood and transform it into a multi-unit municipal housing project. The construction of the present Robert Mills Manor, which commenced in 1939, unearthed the bones of numerous historic burials, but such discoveries did not derail the project. 
attitudes towards the disruption of old cemeteries, especially those containing the forgotten corpses of poor folks and enslaved people, were far different during the early 20th century than those of the present community. The paucity of detailed death records from the late 17th and early 18th centuries precludes the formation of reliable estimates of the total number of individuals buried within the public cemeteries of early Charleston. The imprecise nature of the property records also renders it difficult to identify the precise geographic scope of the property in question. Despite these obstacles, however, we can muster some rough estimates. The town's original public burial ground, identified as the Old Churchyard on surviving copies of the Grand Model, was situated within a vague landscape of approximately 14 acres on the northwestern edge of the town laid out in 1672. That public ground was reduced to just four acres by the grant to James Moore in 1698. The creation of a Negro burying ground in 1746 added a further 2.26 acres of public space, and the British Army expropriated the adjacent vacant lands in 1780, encompassing perhaps as much as four additional acres. This space, containing approximately 10 acres, more or less, was filled to capacity with human bodies by the summer of 1794. Although the individuals buried here varied greatly in age and size, we can apply a formula articulated in a city ordinance of 1801 to estimate the size of each grave and the approximate number of bodies per acre. If the average grave measured 8 feet long and 4 feet wide, comprising 32 square feet, then each acre might contain approximately 1,361 graves. If the cumulative lands designated for public burials between 1672 and 1794 encompassed 10 acres, then the ground was filled with more than 13,000 corpses. This figure is only an estimate, of course, and the actual unquantifiable number might be lower or higher I suspect that few residents of Charleston could imagine that as many as 13,000 bodies might be decomposing within the vibrant neighborhood that now includes the old Charleston District Jail, the old Marine Hospital, formerly the Jenkins Orphanage, the Robert Mills Manor, and numerous private residences. Although this number might seem high, it represents less than half the number of corpses buried within the later and similarly unmarked public cemeteries of urban Charleston. Join me next week when we'll continue this conversation by tracing the history of the city's forgotten public burial grounds used between 1794 and 1927, and the suburban and rural sites used from that time to the present. Charleston County Public Library is your home for local history. To explore our resources and programs, and to read an illustrated transcript of this podcast, point your web browser to ccpl.org. Thanks for listening to the Charleston Time Machine. 
This is Nick Butler, and I'll see you in the future.